Ladies and gentlemen, here's a little extra treat for our podcast. It's a seminar on evangelism that I gave at a recent conference in Hobart. The conference was the Challenge City Conference. It's one of the highlights of our year as churches here in the South, evangelical churches. And the topic of the seminar is building or cultivating a culture of evangelism in our churches, some historical and theological reflections. Two quick things to note. I've left in the little bits of the seminar where I call on people to talk to the person next to them. So you'll have you know, a minute or so of silence at a few points. And the second thing to note is it's not a sermon. Like So from the start, I'm not setting out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. I hope it comes through in all sorts of ways, but that's just not what this one is. Um, but I wanted to include it in our podcast nonetheless, and I hope it's a real benefit to you. Okay, here's the seminar. Before we pray, I'd like to begin not with a text or with a doctrine uh, or whatever, but with Rodney Stark's expertise on the rise of Christianity. So when Christianity first kind of began and started taking off um, like wildfire at the beginning. So Stark's expertise, he's um, a sociologist of religion. That's kind of his shtick. And uh, he's a Christian man as well. And he wrote this, this little book, uh, The Rise of Christianity, which I cannot recommend highly enough. It's a wonderful um, read. And it set me and, and a bunch of pastors on, I think, a very helpful little journey, chewing over um, outreach and evangelism and how we uh, posture, how we're situated as churches and this topic of building a culture of evangelism. So before I get to quoting from Stark, let me lay out a few um, sort of basic facts. Um, In the year AD 33, so 33 AD, several months, say, after Jesus' death and after his resurrection, um, how many Christians were alive on the planet at the time? How many do you reckon? Uh, He reckons, he looks at Acts chapter 1 and uh, a couple of other texts and he reckons probably 120 around about 120 Christians alive on the planet right at the start. So very shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, 120, realistic estimate. Uh, Now fast forward to the year 350, 350, so that's about 320 years later and it's just after Constantine's Edict of Milan, so Christianity is now a recognised, even an endorsed religion in the Roman Empire. How many Christians were alive on the planet in AD 350, do you reckon? It's, that one's harder to have a fix on, isn't it? It's a bit harder to kind of know. Well, Stark takes, he takes a middle-of-the-road model, neither too conservative nor outlandishly um, kind of ambitious. So this is where modern scholarship says Christianity tipped the scales more or less in 350 AD. There were, he argues, you know, with mathematical models, 33 million 882,000 and eight. <laughs> There's the mathematical models coming into play for you. 33,882,008. So from 120 Christians to 33.8 million in 320 years. Uh, so here's Stark now, and I think I've got this on your page. All questions concerning the rise of Christianity, says Stark, are one, how was it done? 
How did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? It's a pretty good question. How? How did they do it? Um, now, Stark's book, I, I just want to say, it's spectacularly good if you've got at all an appetite for sociology uh, or for early church history, I'd warmly recommend it. Um, it's not the most, it's not a massive page turner, but if it's your interest, then um, I'm, I'm sure you'll gobble it up. Um, but I'm not going to give you a, a book review. In essence, he says that uh, scholarship on how Christianity did what it did, has tended to either proceed from some dodgy starting points or reach dodgy conclusions or both. Um, So, for instance, lots of scholars have assumed or argued that um, the kind of growth that Christianity saw simply cannot have come through the normal, uh, gradual conversions. It must have involved radical, large-scale mass conversions. Um, somewhere along the way, the likes of which we've never seen before and have never seen since. And Stark, with that particular one, he says, well, why? Does it really uh, have to have been that way? He says, if you look at the Mormons in recent history, their growth rate as a movement has been about 43% per decade of growth. Um, If they have 100 today, say, then in 10 years they'd have 143, so 43% per decade, which obviously compounds, so you can't quite kind of break it down, and then it goes up very rapidly once you hit um, the sweet spot. So in another 10 years, then there wouldn't just be another 43, there'd be a total of 204, you know what I mean? So Now, just apply that, says Stark, to the per-decade growth from 33 AD to 350 AD, so the numbers that we were just looking at, the rise of Christianity from 120 believers to 33.8 million, what is the growth rate per decade of that kind of number? It's about 40% of growth per decade. Is it big? Yes. Is it crazy, outlandish, the likes of which we've never seen before? No. It's big, but it's not outlandish. The Mormons are doing it now, or have been. So, back to his question, how was it done? And just by the way, we may have quibbles over what constitutes a real Christian for his counting, because of course, you know, it's kind of like taking a census, isn't it? Uh, Were were there many people in there who didn't really know the gospel, they just called themselves Christian? Yeah, sure, I have no doubt about that, of course there were. Um, Nevertheless, it's uh, uh, no doubt about it, it was still massive growth. Anyway, I'm I'm captivated by this, uh, and I hope I've given this to you as well, this important building block in Stark's case, and I want to share it with you, and I want to hold our churches up Um, to this, uh, for this heading of um, building a culture of evangelism. So, early on in his book, he says this, he says, the basis for successful conversionist movements is growth through social networks, through a, and, and here's this little technical phrase he's got, through a structure of direct and intimate interpersonal attachments. Most new religious movements fail because they quickly become closed or semi-closed networks. That is, they fail to keep forming and sustaining attachments to outsiders and thereby lose the capacity to grow. Successful movements discover techniques for remaining open networks, able to reach out and into new adjacent social um, networks. And herein lies the capacity of movements to sustain exponential rates of growth over a long time. 
He's a sociologist, right? Um, and so that's his thing, that's the purpose of his study. I want to say, as best I can understand him, he believes in the sovereignty of God, he believes in the, it, it, that people have to encounter the word of the gospel to become Christians, they need to respond in repentance and faith, which is a thing that can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit. I think he believes all these things, but he's putting his sociologist cap on and just saying, how does this work, um, practically speaking, uh, socially speaking, what does it look like? So here's my focus uh, for today. Um, I'm not going to focus on preaching or on your preaching program. I'm not going to focus on prayer meetings um, or on your Bible study or the content of your Bible study um, courses. I think all of those are essential to building an evangelistic culture. But I just want to zero in on these few uh, phrases from that last bit. In our, you know, in our personal, in our family, in our church lives, have we lost the capacity to grow because we've, in effect, rendered our social networks closed or semi-closed, um, to use Stark's language? Have we developed church cultures that functionally keep the gospel to ourselves? Uh, and, and what might this structure of direct and intimate interpersonal attachments look like for us practically? Long introduction, let me pray and then, um, then I'll dive in uh, to some practicals. Let's go. Father God in heaven, uh, this evening as our minds are weary, not just from the things we've looked at tonight, but our whole week, we ask, would you please give us a little bit more go for this evening? Would you grant us please clear heads and honest hearts to consider how our lives, our lives personally, our lives together, our lives in our churches, how our lives measure up in the grand view of the pursuit of your kingdom. Um, we pray please that you'd enable us to maintain both a humble outlook on our little contribution to your kingdom and yet a voracious ambition when it comes to a desire to give ourselves to the service of your kingdom um, in imitation of our Lord and in the pursuit of his glory. Father, some of us are ahead of others in, in this or that respect when it comes to outreach, so grant us please a desire to humbly help and learn uh, from and with one another and not just for tonight but moving forward and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So uh, building a culture of evangelism, uh, I'm just going to give you four headings, um, it, in some ways I'm taking a bit of a scattergun approach, I'm going to give you four headings and then I'm going to just say a bunch of stuff under those four headings um, and they're printed on your um, outline. Does everyone have an outline? I think so, thanks for covering for me. Um, there. Before I do that, let's get a little bit of our own skin in the game, so to speak. Now, I, don't, I think it's too late for very much group work, so I'm going to give us very tight um, group work tasks. And Rob, I might need you to move so that you're next to someone, because I'm going to get you to turn to your neighbour kind of a thing. Um, or someone can move next to Rob. Someone can move. <laughs> get out. <laughs> um, so we've all got a person beside us. Here's what I'm going to give you 30 seconds to confess to that person beside you and then 30 seconds for them to confess to you. Um, and here's the question, what specifically is pre preventing you at the moment from being more actively evangelistic, reaching out to the lost with the gospel? It doesn't have to be big and massive, the, you know, thing. Is there one thing that you can think of? If I change that, that would be a really good thing 
for the sake of outreach um, in my life. I'm not asking you to change your gifting or your ability or your circumstance in life. Um, you know, I don't want you to be someone else or stop being a parent or give up that uni course. I just mean, no, no, you, in your situation at the moment, what's one thing um, preventing you from being more effective in outreach and evangelism? Where do you feel it? You got 30 seconds? So go. <laughs> Okay, if you've been doing all the talking, let the other person do the talking now. Okay, I'm just going to put you on, on hold there. Hopefully there's, there's something there for one of you. Um, for now, come back with me to Stark's figure, his 40% growth per decade. I just want to put some flesh on that little skeleton there. 40% 40, 40 growth per decade. Let's put that into a real-life picture of your church and mine and then sort of backward engineer that a little bit. So, uh, and that's going to be the structure, my four headings, um, as you'll see from the little thing at the bottom and the headings on the way through. So, round figures, let's just say my church has 100 people in it, which is a little bit generous, um, but it's a nice round figure and I know how to do maths with round figures. So, that means that in 10 years, at 40% growth per decade, we'll hit 140 people. In 10 years, 40% growth per decade. Now, just for simplicity, flatten that out for me to be the same growth every year for each of those years. Uh, so let's call that four people per year who are new and who stick to my church every single year for the next 10 years to cumulatively give me the 40 new people. Um, okay. I, I can visualise that. Can you visualise that in the case of your church? If you've got about 100 people, um, scale it down if you need to. But if you've got a church of 50, two people every year, every year, every single year for the next 10 years. And then obviously in the next decade, then you need to come up with a slightly higher number. Okay, let's go with four um, and, uh, and uh, four people per year, every single year for 10 years, um, a church of 100 people. Now, for the sake of structuring today's discussion, let's then plug those numbers, four people per year, every year, into a, a little tool, which is a business tool. Um, it's... Uh, I'm borrowing this from Matt Lehman, who's a pastor in Adelaide, and I gather he used to use it where he worked in the ANZ Bank previously. It's called a sales funnel, uh, and the thinking works like this. So if you've got that picture there, um, uh, if you want four people to actually order your product, at the very, they're at the bottom of the funnel, four people that you want to order your product this year, um, for our purposes, let's call those converts, or at least new members, we want four of those per year, then above that, in the next layer of the funnel, you actually need a bunch more than four people who are seriously, like, really close to joining your church or becoming Christians. 
So we'll call those close. You seriously reckon that they're going to join, but then only four of them do. Um, so how many people do you need to get four people um, from... How many people do you need who are really close to get four people who actually stick? I'm going to say maybe 10, something like that. You know, for 10 people who I think, gosh, those people are really close, eh, then only four stick. Um, maybe the other six leak out the side, maybe they go somewhere else, maybe they walk away from the faith, at least for this year. Uh, above that, you then need another layer, broader again, um, who I'm going to call genuine maybes. Um, in sales speak, they're qualified, that is to say they actually need or at least want the thing that you're selling and uh, they're at a place in life where they can afford it and you're talking to the right person in terms of who can buy it. Um, so that's in sales terms. In our terms, what's a genuine maybe? I'm thinking they've visited our church. They've actually been there. Um, they uh, live close enough to keep coming back. They're not just blow-ins or tourists um, or whatever. And there's some level of genuine interest. Now, how many do you have there to get 10 who might seriously join to have four who then actually stick? Maybe 50, something like that of just people who come through my church for every 50 people who visit my church, there's 10 who get really close, four who end up joining, just round figures. Last group, top layer, contacts. There's a pool of contacts from which you're hoping to draw your 50 genuine maybes. These folks, they haven't even come along to your church yet, they're just the pool that your people at church need to be swimming in in order to attract those 50 who then become 10, who then become your four. How large does that pool of non-Christian or at least non-church-going contacts need to be to ultimately get down to your four contacts? Do you see how the structure works? It's fairly... I mean, you can see obviously why it's set up for sales because they need to work at each of those layers in order to be able to... And for us, it's just a tool that's going to structure our conversation. But to get those four contacts sorry, four converts every year for the next 10 years, what size is that pool that we've got to be swimming in? It's hundreds, right? Hundreds of non-Christians and non-church people. Now, why do I mention this? It's simply to give us these four headings, which cultural habits as churches are going to expand our pool of contacts? It's our first heading. Uh, how do we then help those contacts become genuine maybes? come to church, actual visitors, what then moves them close, like nearly there, they might actually commit, I think they're gonna, and then um, ultimately the, what kind of culture gets them over the line with the gospel into the kingdom by the sovereign power of God's Holy Spirit. Just a, a structure. Um, stage one, I'm just going to dive straight into that, I think, uh, so we work down our way through the funnel um, now, expanding the pool, seven questions. What we're talking about here is churches... Look, churches that are full of people who love one another, care about one another, are invested in one another's lives, churches of people like that deliberately turning outwards for the sake of the lost, to reach people beyond them, such that they become a socially open network that's in touch with hundreds of non-Christian people in meaningful ways. Now, I've got seven quick questions to kind of draw um, us out here and, and seven quick, I guess, questions that I, I ask myself about how I'm going. The first one is, am I building any actual friendships with non-Christians right now? 
I don't mean, are you friendly? I'm, I'm friendly, I'm polite, I'm interested. I talk to the young ladies at the checkout at my local IGA, um, but they're not my friends. <laughs> they're just, I'm just being friendly. No, are there non-church people that I'm building meaningful personal relationships with? That's question number one. Question number two, what opportunities do my actual interests or expertise give me to cultivate new connections? What opportunities do my actual interests and expertise give me to cultivate new connections? Now, at this point, I'm not trying to hit you with the stick of, you need to try harder. So, no, I'm not talking about which interests could you cultivate. Um, some of us are totally into this or that. I'm not asking you to cultivate an interest in fermentation because that's the coolest thing right now and you totally should, by the way. No, no, no. Which things are you actually interested in or where do you have expertise um, that could grant you opportunities to cultivate new connections? Um, so for me, uh, I love swimming. I could start swimming with a coach squad. I've given that thought. I don't know if I want to jump over that line at the moment. Uh, on the other hand, I totally love, I would totally love to be part of a book club that reads the particular niche kind of books um, that I'm totally into and that I already devour. So I could start, or actually what I've done, is join a book club that is already doing that sort of stuff. Um, you know, so where are the interests, expertise that um, can give me new connections? It could be a running partner, a whiskey club, uh, a creative space kind of thing. Okay, third question, way to expand my pool of contacts. Can my commitment to gospel openness challenge my comfort zone, my personality, my preferences? So, am I willing for my, this commitment to being open to new relationships, am I willing to let that challenge my comfort zone, my personality, my preferences? Um, in the last few years especially, I've come to realise that a commitment to openness and creating, you know, uh, meeting new people, making new friends, means that I'd probably better get used to being the guy who starts stuff, invites people to stuff, um, initiates contact, becomes the one who does stuff. I know some of you guys are very good at this already. Uh, and please don't think I'm a pure extrovert either, because I'm not. It, it costs me emotionally a bit to do that. But I'm convinced that spending my life waiting for someone else to invite me or to do that thing or to organise that trip to the movies, oh, I could spend my life waiting. It's, you know what I mean? Um, for some of us, that in itself is a mental shift, I think. And to be clear, it's one that I think needs to come from a genuine kingdom concern, not guilt or fear, otherwise it's going to come across as sort of shallow and desperate. Um, can my commitment to gospel openness challenge my comfort zone, my personality, my preferences? That was number three. Number four, has life thrown me any opportunities to connect in surprising ways? Has life thrown me any opportunities to connect in surprising ways? So there's a lady at my church, um, we were talking about habits and reaching new people and she came out with this awesome one which just blew me away. Um, so when a new neighbour moves in on her street, she strolls around there with a bottle of champagne. I reckon that is awesome. It's not strolling around there with... Now, what, do you, what did you think I was going to say? With a batch of cookies. I mean, that's too predictable. Um, anyone can do that. It doesn't really... I mean, cookies are nice. I like cookies. Um, it, it's not strolling around there with nothing. 
and just saying hi. It's not strolling around there with a flyer for church, which is way too scary. It's champagne. How awesome is that? Um, I, I love that for two reasons. Number one, what a way to start a relationship. Um, but number two, I love that it's genuinely surprising. And, and I think surprise is... Uh, let me share with you this thing from C.J. Mahaney. He's a, a pastor of, a, I think, a very big church in the States. And he has this little thing about surprising, which he sees as kind of being stitched a bit more to the gospel than we sometimes um, give it credit for. So he says... Granted, surprising others is not always distinct from serving them. But while we often think of serving as limited to meeting obvious needs, there's more to it than that. Paul writes, and here he quotes Romans 12 verse 10, Paul writes, outdo one another in showing honour. The intentionality and the the intensity of this statement are hard to miss. God commands a holy competition in showing honour to others. Now, maybe you think that's a bit of a long bow to go from there to carrying a bottle of champagne around to the new neighbour. Yeah, granted, fair enough. But the idea that service isn't just limited to meeting really obvious needs, but actually can be kind of meeting, being surprising in the way that you serve one another. I think there's something lovely about that. And I do think there's something, well, there is something over-the-top, prodigal, wasteful in God's um, reaching of us. Um, in the gospel that you can stitch it to. Anyway, it could be the neighbour with the new kid, it could be the bloke at work who's just become obsessed with golf. Buy him half a dozen golf balls or something. You know what I mean? It's a surprising kind of little gesture. Fifth question, this isn't a question actually, decide to ditch jealousy. It's just, a st- it's just I'm just telling you. Um, I, I confess that there are times when I look around at my Christian friends and I get to thinking that their non-Christian friends are more interesting, probably less work, work, more interested in the gospel and church and all around just better prospects than my non-Christian friends. Mine who are confounding and uninterested and scary and honestly less existent (laughs) than I'd care to admit. I think we need to ditch jealousy. Their friends aren't easier or better. (laughs) They're they're slaving away with the same prayers that we are. Um, let's not make evangelism the thing that we compete, one and, compete with one another and, and, and devour one another in. Uh, sixthly, yes, our church calendars are full of events that we run and that we invent and that we brainstorm and figure out how to control and manage and put on and stuff, but are there, here's the question, external, non-church events that your church could feasibly get involved in? And you need to answer the question of whether you see church's purpose as being stitched into all of that. I'm assuming that actually, yes, there is a platform for doing that. That's a discussion for another time. I'm not interested in having that right now. Um, So over in my neck of the woods on the Eastern Shore, for example, could we, could my church, Good News Church, give away little branded helium balloons at the Emmanuel School Fair? Yeah, could we do that? That way... Emmanuel gets to do all of the work of putting on a school fair, we get to show up with a helium tank and just see what bubbles up in terms of contacts and relationships. Um, or the Clarence Jazz Festival, or could we do more with the Christmas concert down on Bell Reeve Quay? I find e- events exhausting to run. Like, I believe in them, I'll do them, I'll keep doing them, but they are exhausting, they're taxing, they require a lot of us. Let someone else do the hard work and we just breeze in with the things that enable us to kind of reach out to new people with new networks, frankly. Seventhly, lastly, pray. Are new people 
on our daily prayer lists or however you do that. Um, okay, time check. Yep, 30 seconds with one another again. I'll just let you finish writing that sentence if you're jotting that down. Uh, new people on your daily prayer lists. 30 seconds with one another each again, just with your partner. Can you name a step that you should take or a question at least that you know you ought to answer or whether or not it's one of my questions or one that's popped into your mind? 30 seconds each, let's go. Should be the other person's turn now. Okay, coming back. Um, stage two then, second part of the funnel, helping contacts to become genuine maybe. So remember this is moving from the pool of contacts to someone who actually comes along and visits your church. Now I've just got three things here, but to, for you to understand them, I need to tell you about turkeys, mother turkeys um, in particular. When a mother turkey is confronted by its sworn em enemy, the polecat, so like this feral... Uh, like a ferret kind of thing, actually. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable what happens. Now, have a listen to this. So Robert Cialdini, he tells it like this. He says, Turkey mothers are good mothers, loving, watchful and protective. They spend much of their time tending, warming, cleaning and huddling the young beneath them. But there's something odd about their method. Virtually all of this mothering is triggered by one thing, the cheep cheep sound of young turkey chicks. Other identifying features of the chicks, such as their smell, touch or appearance, seem to play minor roles in the mothering process. If a, chip, if a chick makes the cheep cheep noise, its mother will care for it. If not, the mother will ignore or sometimes kill it. The extreme reliance of maternal turkeys upon this one sound was dramatically illustrated, says Cialdini, by animal behaviourist M.W. Fox. What an awesome name from animal behaviourist, just by the way. M.W. Fox, in his description of an experiment involving a mother turkey and a stuffed polecat. For a mother turkey, a polecat is a natural enemy whose approach is greeted with a squawking, pecking, clawing rage. Indeed, the experimenters found that even a stuffed model of a polecat, when drawn by a string toward the mother turkey, received an immediate and furious attack. When, however, the same stuffed replica carried inside it a small recorder that played the chip-chip sound of baby turkeys, the mother not only accepted, accepted the incoming polecat, but gathered it underneath her. When the machine was turned off, the polecat again drew a vicious attack. How ridiculous 
A female turkey seems under these circumstances. She will embrace a natural enemy just because it goes cheep, cheep, and she will mistreat or murder one of her own chicks just because it does not. She looks like an automaton whose maternal instincts are under the automatic control of that single sound. Now, what have automaton turkeys got to do with helping contacts to become genuine maybes at church? Well, recently I heard two separate pastors talk about how they equip their congregations with to talk spiritual things with outsiders and specifically to engage them in conversation about the gospel or to invite them to church and both were talking at the level of habit. You hear a sound, you hear a cue and you kind of roll the tape, so to speak, you roll out the behaviour. Now where I tend to teach as a preacher, as a pastor, I tend to teach at the level of principle, kind of vague principle, occasionally making some specific application to life, but not so much in the area of here's a habit, when you hear this in conversation, you could say this to help my congregation invite their friends to church or have those spiritual conversations. So anyway, I just want to share with you a couple of these little habits which I found fascinating, both from for me as a pastor, as a teacher, but also in, in terms of um, just my conversation, uh, helping people to come to church, be engaged with the gospel. Firstly, Tim Keller, Tim Keller from New York City, he points out um, that yes, sometimes you get the golden question, please give me the reason for the hope that you have, <laughs> not very often um, though. Often, getting social permission to advance a conversation in a spiritual direction, it has to be way more subtle. So, what he's done is, he's equipped his congregation with a phrase, it's not pushy on the one hand, but it's not nothing either. Um, So, do you want to know his phrase? His phrase is, my faith has helped me there. It's not pushy, it's telling the person something about my life and how it's been affected by the Gospel, but it's certainly opening the door for that person to explore more. My faith has helped me there. So, just the other week, um, a barista contact of mine, a young lady who makes coffee for me fairly regularly, she mentioned that she'd been to a funeral um, and in this moment of being very real with me, I thought, she said um, something like, and I've almost got this verbatim, I just couldn't quite remember exactly, she said, yeah, death, I still don't feel like I've wrapped my head around that one. Do you know what I said? Something completely moronic, I was so disappointed with myself afterwards, it was like, oh, there was such a golden opportunity, I don't know what I should have said, but now I do know what I should have said. I should have said, yeah, I think my faith has helped me there, actually. So, not preaching at her, Uh, It it was not an opportunity for me to uh, uh, preach to her about the life beyond death, um, hope that I have in the risen Lord Jesus. That wasn't wasn't what the occasion was socially. I didn't have permission to do that, how Jesus has conquered sin and death. Just to open the door, my faith has helped me there. A subtle request for permission to proceed. Uh, Second one, second uh, habit, so that first one was Tim Keller. Second one comes from Andy Stanley, who's from North Point, community church and I, I think he's kind of one of these pastors with oh, satellite churches, you know, just enormous empire of churches. Anyway, Andy Stanley, he was interviewing um, Charles Duhigg, who's kind of the guru on habits and human habits, not so much turkey habits, I think. Um, and Andy Stanley um, 
So the pastor let slip that in his church, he's trained his people to listen out for three knots. So this is the chip chip that they're listening for in conversation, three knots, and to respond with an invitation to church. So how do you actually invite people to church? Well, says Stanley, listen for these three knots. Uh, They are, when you hear these phrases, I'm not in church, which I've never heard an Australian say that. Um, I think that might be an American thing where there is more of an expectation that you'd be in church. I'm not in church, that's the first knot. I'm not going well. Or I'm not prepared for whatever it is, being a dad, starting this job, this diagnosis that I've just got. I'm just not prepared for this. And what Stanley says is, let your next sentence be, would you like to come to church with me? Now, two things. In that interview, Duhigg responded to Stanley and he said, that's actually doubly smart because it's not just that you've got a clear cue for your people, they hear one of those phrases, the three knots, and they respond with an invitation to church, but also it's smart because those are emotional moments for people. I'm not doing so well. I'm not prepared to have another kid at the moment. And it's in those emotional moments that people are most open to considering new options in their life, just practically, you know, psychologically speaking. Um, a second thing, just a broad comment, like I said, as a pastor, I don't train my people at that level, I don't think, very often. I give these lofty values and principles and I try sometimes to give nifty apologetic arguments, but habitual cues to help my congregation make an invitation to church, now maybe these aren't exactly the ones that they need, but figuring out what those habitual cues could be, um, I think I need to do more work there. Third one here, I said that there were three things, so there are the two habits, third one here is pray. Are fringe people on our prayer lists, do we pray at session or church council or your elders meetings or whatever you call them, do we pray for newcomers or do we just pray for the old guard and their health problems or or whatever, do you know what I mean? Um, Okay, 30 seconds each again, Uh, might even give you less than 30, no, 30 seconds is fine. 30 seconds each, again with the person next to you, can you think of a person to invite to church... Or, to, uh, or a step to take to be able to invite someone in your life along to church. 30 seconds, go. Um, you should definitely be swapped to the other person. Okay, stage number three. Funnel part number three, we're nearly to the bottom now. How can we draw people from being genuine maybes to being close? And I'm going to give you the four things up front first and then we'll hook back around on them in a little more detail, but we are picking up the pace. Uh, My four things are, 
firstly, we probably underestimate the impact that we, as just regular churchgoers, can have on a person really sticking at church. We underestimate the impact that regular churchgoers have on a person sticking. Thanks, Jake. We probably overestimate, secondly, the significance of doctrine in an average person's decision-making process, humanly speaking, when it comes to answering the question, do I actually go back to church next week? I suspect we overestimate doctrine in that decision-making process. Thirdly, we probably underestimate the importance of helping people find their way in to our church communities. And fourthly, you've probably picked a pattern by now, pray (laughs) Uh, that people can um, uh, move closer from genuine maybes to uh, regulars who might actually stick. Let me hook back around on those with some specifics. So I'm suggesting that you, oh regular churchgoer, for those of you who, you know, aren't employed to be a pastor, um, I'm suggesting that you have more power than you realise to draw a fringe person close at church. We underestimate regular churchgoers. So Ed Stetzer, Ed Stetzer's kind of a guru on church research and this was American, uh, the research that he's talking about here. Did I give you a quote here? It's only a short one though, isn't it? Yeah, I think I've only given you a little excerpt, but I'll, I'll, so I'll read slightly more broadly. Um, regarding follow-up, uh, following up visitors to church, he says, follow up, qui- uh, follow up quickly by making a personal contact with guests. The first contact should be made immediately by a lay person over the phone. Initial contact could also be made by a personal visit if the, if the person has given his or her address. This contact should be made first by a lay person, uh, as in not a pastor. One study revealed that clergy follow-up reduced the effectiveness by one half compared to lay persons doing the same. Is that surprising? He then quotes the research um, to explain what he means. No other single factor makes a greater difference than an immediate visit to the home of first-time worshippers. When laypersons make 15-minute visits to the homes of first-time worship visitors within 36 hours, 85% of them return the following week. uh, Those who make this home visit within 72 hours um, and 60% of them return. Make it seven days later and 15% will return. The pastor making this call, rather than laypersons, cuts each result in half. You can do things that your pastor can't, or at least do things much more effectively. And pastors, there's only a couple of us in the room, but that's all right, um, don't think it's any other way. (laughs) They can do things we can't, and that's good. Firstly, we underestimate the power our laypersons have. Secondly, I said we overestimate the significance of doctrine when it comes to, do I actually come back to church next week or at all? Now, please, don't hear me as marginalising the gospel. (laughs) And uh, for those of you who know me quite well, you'll know that um, undervaluing doctrine is generally not what I'm about. (laughs) In fact, I'm kind of the opposite. I'm the guy who waffles on um, all too much about it to the... um, uh, what well, boredom of the people around me at times. Anyway, that's, you know, confession. Rodney Stark, though, he reckons that our memories of what drew us back to church, our memories, looking back, is probably faulty. Uh, our, our memories are faulty. It's probably less about the doctrine than we care to admit. Now, he has this fascinating thing. He and John Laughlin, uh, another sociologist, 
they did some research on some people as they were becoming Moonies. You know the Moonies? So the Korean um, cult, the Sun Myung Moon guy? Um, Here's what he said. Had we not gone out and watched people as they converted, we might have missed this point entirely. Because when people retrospectively describe their conversions, they tend to put the stress on theology. When asked why they converted, Moonies invariably noted the irresistible appeal of the divine principles, that's the group's scripture, suggesting that only the blind could reject such obvious and powerful truths. In making these claims, converts implied and often stated that their path to conversion was an end product of a search for faith. But, says Stark, but Loftland and I knew better because we met them well before they'd learned to appreciate the doctrines, before they had learned how to testify to their faith, back when they were not seeking faith at all. Indeed, we could remember when most of them regarded the religious beliefs of their new set of friends as quite odd. I recall one who told me that he was quite puzzled that such nice people could get so worked up about some guy in Korea who claimed to be the Lord of the Second Advent. Then one day, he got worked up about this guy too. And Stark suggests, he says, I suggest that this is also how people in the first century got worked up about someone who claimed to be the Lord of the First Advent. He's just looking at it sociologically, right? (laughs) He's a Christian man, he believes in Jesus. So lastly, if we're overestimating theology, I put it to you, we're probably underestimating what it means to help someone really belong in our church community. So Stark again, he says, we soon realised that of all the people the Moonies encountered in their efforts to spread their faith, the only ones who joined were those whose interpersonal attachments to members overbalanced their attachments to non-members. Just think about that. The only ones who joined were those whose interpersonal attachments to members overbalanced their attachments to non-members. In effect, conversion is not about seeking or embracing an ideology, it is about bringing one's religious behaviour into alignment with that of one's friends and family members. I think often, by contrast, we think if we get the right doctrine across, then no matter what the obstacles socially for a person becoming a Christian, they'll overcome them. Just to be clear, he's not trying to uh, undermine the gospel, deny the work of the Spirit, he's just using sociology, but I think it helps us to see this, doesn't it, that relationships really matter, like really matter, socially speaking. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, not dot every I and cross every T. No, if you love one another, there is something to be dramatic, uh, dramatically um, different about our way of relating with one another. All right, um, I'm just going to power through to the, the last stage, the bottom of the funnel, from close to converts. We're on the home stretch. Let's hit these points very quickly. I've got a closing story. We'll pray and then we can go home to bed. <laughs> Let me say this. There's, there's no conversion, okay, we're down in the converts box, there's no conversion without people engaging with the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus and turning in repentance and faith. Well, that, that is what the conversion is, right? And that's a thing that can, be, that can only happen by the power of God's Holy Spirit as He gives regeneration to us. Um, all this is talking about is characteristics of church communities 
where that has happened or is happening regularly. And I've, I've listed there eight characteristics of a newcomer who has become assimilated, become integrated into a new church, who has found their home amongst a group of new, or, uh, sorry, of believers, newly found their home amongst them. Let me focus on just two of them, but I'll give all eight to you. Number one, new members should be able to list at least seven new friends they've made in church. Two, new members should be able to identify their spiritual gifts. Three, new members should be involved in at least one, preferably several roles, task ministries in the church appropriate to their spiritual gifts. Number four, new members should be actively involved in small fellowship, so face-to-face uh, what Bible studies, connect groups, um, growth groups, whatever you call them. Fifthly, new members should demonstrate a regular financial commitment to the church. Sixthly, new members should personally understand and identify with church goals. Seventhly, new members should attend worship services regularly. Eighthly, new members should identify unchurched friends and relatives and take specific steps to help them toward responsible church membership. Just note how, how many of those are social, actually. So many of them are to do with relationships, um, in the church, doing things with other Christians. I just want to focus on two of them. Number one, the one labelled number one. Please just let that one sit with you. In terms of your church's, my church's flexibility when it comes to newcomers, number one, new members should be able to list at least seven new friends they've made in the church. It's a little worse, actually, a little harder. Um, William Hendricks, I'm quoting here, William Hendricks argues that new Christians are likely to leave the church within the first six months of faith if they don't develop seven significant relationships with the congregation in that time. Likely to leave. Is my church and is your church basically a club of old friends? Or is there real relational room for new people and do we give one another, get this, do we give one another permission to spend time with new friends and new people to church without collapsing in on ourselves in pangs of kind of jealous possessiveness for her time and her attention or his time and his attention, I just wish he hung out with me. Do you know what I mean? The kind of games that we play with our friends at church and we just want time with them no, celebrate that they're going to have, go and have lunch with that person who's newish to church. It's good if they do. And in fact, it might be the difference between them sticking and them not. Second one I wanted to focus on is number three, new members should be involved in at least one and preferably several roles and tasks and ministries. I'll just pick on something very small here. As odd as it may sound, if your church, like mine actually, locks down the rosters 12 months in advance, does your church do that? Mine does. Um, Where you basically need to be related to the person writing the roster or to have the pastor tap that person on the shoulder and say, please put that person on this roster. Do you know what I mean? So this is an area where churches are quite different, but I bet the person writing the roster in your church... uh, Sorry, that's unfair. (laughs) In my church, I bet he hasn't thought about this. Now, he's doing a wonderful service to our church, let me just say, because, frankly, the rosters, me writing the rosters, no, thanks, I don't want to do it. But I wonder if he's thought about new members should be involved in at least one, preferably several, roles, tasks, ministries. It makes a massive difference to someone feeling like they belong. 
Your church may be less open than we, than I might hope. Um, And lastly, on this um, heading, please don't give up praying for real conversions with the same intensity and passion that we pray prayers of repentance, of confession or requests for that matter. I'd like to close with a story, if I may. Um, Have you guys heard of Dmitry Belozichev? He's he's on there. You guys need to bone up on your um, old Russian gymnasts. Dmitry Belozichev, so he was a Russian, uh, well, he was a Soviet gymnast, actually, in the early 80s. He was at the absolute peak of his gymnastic career in 1983. He dominated the world championships in the, in the all-around competition for the um, men's in 1983 in the world champs. So uh, the all-around is the, the combination of all of the different apparatus, which for the men is the vault, the floor, the pommel horse, the rings the um, parallel bars and the high bar, or at least it, that's what it was in that competition and, and mostly still is. And he killed it. He, he didn't just win, he set a new high score um, for the all-around, 119.20 out of 120 as a possible high score. Go and look it up on YouTube. In his final apparatus, so which was the floor, he posted a perfect 10 Um, I've heard someone uh, who knew him personally describe Dimitri like this. He's a legend in gymnastics. If we get together with a room full of world and Olympic champions who are Russian, they will all defer to Dimitri. He's that big a legend. And this is in a room full of massive egos. I mean, think of Russian gymnasts, for goodness sake. Massive egos. There's no shortage of confidence here. And if Dimitri is in the room, they treat Dimitri awesome. So that was 1983. In 1984... Dimitri, he won five golds at the Friendship Games. Remember, this was the Cold War era, so the Soviet nations boycotted the Los Angeles Olympics. This was, you know, not a happy time between uh, the USSR and America. Um, In 1985, so that was 1984, Friendship Games, in 1985, Dimitri had a car accident and his leg was beat up pretty bad. Now, one of Dimitri's friends described what happened in these words, um, and I wonder if we could, in this, just put ourselves into the shoes of the surgeon for a moment, which some of you can probably quite easily do. There you go. Dimitri had a car accident and broke his left lower leg between the knee and the ankle in 42 places. 42 places. So basically, you know, it's powder. They put him in, he's unconscious, he's on the table, he's covered up and they're getting ready to remove his lower leg. They're going to take it off. And the surgeon pulls the sheet down because he's prepped for surgery. Dimitri's out and the surgeon sees it's Dimitri. Now this is Russia, right? In the early 80s, it's not warm, friendly Russia. And the doctor immediately says to himself, I am not cutting this leg off because the surgeon who takes off Dmitry Belozichev's leg is probably going to lose his hands shortly thereafter. So they save his leg. And Dmitry comes back from it, and he wins the Worlds in 1987, and he goes to the 88 Olympics, and he does great medals, gold medals, and in fact he won three gold medals and a bronze. Brothers and sisters, my point here in closing is simply this. I think we need to resist um, dumping cultural change toward more outreach and evangelism. I think we need to resist dumping it in the too hard basket. 
for any of our three standard reasons. Uh, sometimes we tell ourselves our problems in evangelism, they just aren't our fault. Um, there's nothing that we can do. Ah, Australian culture, it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. It's impenetrable. No one wants to hear, no one wants to believe in God and there's nothing that we can do about it. I'm not convinced that that's a good read of Australian culture or the people around us, nor do I think it's a good estimate of what lies within our control. Other times we tell ourselves, actually, this is, the solution's really simple. I've just got to try harder. I just have to push a bit more. Or the solution is structural, it's gospel communities. If we just switched our church across to a different structure, then all of our evangelistic problems will be solved. And thirdly, and at other times, I think we realise that the problems look more like Dimitri's leg. And no one's saying that we should amputate evangelism or uh, cut off outreach, but it kind of becomes too hard. We feel responsibility for it, but the problem is too vast because who can turn powder back into bone? I will build my church, says Jesus in Matthew 16. Go, make disciples of all nations, says Jesus in Matthew 28. So I guess my closing appeal is just a broad one. Let's be churches and elders and pastors uh, and networks of people that keep outreach on the agenda, uh, that keep evangelism and building a culture of evangelism as the thing that we talk about, even when we can't see the path back to Olympic gold, even when it seems like shattered powder... Let's commit to that and I personally believe that we need one another in that area. I don't think any one of our churches has all the answers. I do think we need to partner with one another, network with one another, help one another in that. You've been amazing, I've waffled on, let's pray and then we'll go home to bed. Father God in heaven, thank you very much that the gospel has reached our ears and by your sovereign work, you've transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your son, the kingdom of light uh, the only kingdom that has an enduring future. Lord God, we pray for this city around us. Uh, we pray for your mercy on it. We pray for this world around us and for your mercy on it. Father, we know that there is no one who is beyond your reach or your grasp for the whole world and all its fullness belongs to you. And we ask, Father, would you please use us, your servants, all the more fully to declare your praises in this world and would you please help us to be agents of change in our churches, um, seeking humbly uh, to bring about uh, whole cultures and behaviours and habits and patterns of doing things that actually help to promote the gospel of Jesus to more and more people. We ask it for your glory. Amen. Good night. <laughs>